As the children are making their way out, would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. You know, the Advent season isn't just about us remembering and reflecting upon the first coming of Jesus, the first Advent as He was born and, and laid humbly in a manger. It's also about us reflecting on, preparing ourselves for His second Advent when He comes as the victorious King to sit on His throne forever and forever. And that brings me to today's passage in 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, and let's read verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things draws near. That's what Peter says. That's a little ominous, isn't it? I mean, I can't read that and not think of some of those, you know, crazy seeming street preachers with the cardboard placards, right, that say the end is coming, right? The end is near. And, and we, we kind of see them and, and, and the world sees them and sort of derides them and, and mocks them. Uh, there's a lot of cartoons. You just Google that. There's lots of cartoons kind of making fun of that idea. But this also makes me think of another seemingly crazy preacher out on the fringes of society. But instead of wearing cardboard, this guy wore camel hair and he ate locusts and honey. John the Baptist came to prepare Israel for the first coming of their Messiah, to preach a message that they should repent because judgment is coming near. Well, Peter comes to preach to us a message to help us prepare for Jesus' second coming because, once again, judgment is near. Now, you may wonder, 2,000 years after Peter wrote this, what he meant when he says the end of all things is near. Because it's 2,000 years and we're still here, right? I don't know about you, but 2,000 years is hardly something I'd call near, right? I mean, it just, that just seems like a very long time. But in terms of God's timetable, the end has already begun. It began a long time ago. It began when Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. Thus began the end times. We truly are living in the final chapters of human history. Peter set the stage for this in his opening chapter. In chapter 1, verse 20, he said that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, so before the world was even created. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit knew this plan, that Jesus would come, would be born of the Virgin Mary, laid in that manger, live a sinless life, die on the cross, rise from the grave, and return someday to bring all of history to a close. But he says, but Jesus was revealed in these last times for you. So according to Peter, Jesus, when he was born, his ministry, his life, death, and resurrection, the revealing of Jesus is in these last times. We do indeed live in the final days. So Peter reveals that this truth, the end of all things is near, requires something from us. Because he says, therefore... 
The end of all things is near. Therefore, in other words, because Jesus is coming back and every day we're a day closer to His return, how now shall we live? What difference does it make for us that our King is coming? Peter gives us five actions that we should embrace as a part of our lives. You know, it's just as Mary and Joseph had to prepare for the birth of Jesus, we must prepare our hearts, our church, our world. We must prepare ourselves for His return. We can think of these as spiritual markers for how ready we are for the return of the King. The first one Peter mentions when he says, the end of all things is near, therefore, he says, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. We are to be sober-minded for prayer. Now, he says be alert and sober-minded, but those words alert and sober-minded are synonyms. The Greek word alert there can also mean sensible, right-minded, self-controlled, and sober-minded is obviously a synonym for that because it also means to be sober-minded means to be in control of your faculties. It means to be uh, in control of yourself as opposed to being under the influence of alcohol or drugs, right? We're to be sober-minded. Thinking clearly is what Peter is saying. And we should be thinking clearly. We should be clear-headed in these days as the end of all things draws near specifically so we can pray. Sober-minded for prayer. Now, it's helpful here to note that for each of these five spiritual markers of readiness, Peter, a few verses earlier, gives us the opposite of them in the world. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. He says, For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. So we're going to keep referring to these marks of the lost world that's not prepared for Jesus' return as opposites of what Peter calls us to do. So Peter here basically is saying that before you came to faith in Christ, you spent enough time doing the things the lost world does. You spent enough time doing those things, but now the end of all things is near. We no longer just live for ourselves today. We live for Christ's return tomorrow. Our time is limited. The end is drawing near. Therefore, we need to spend our time doing better things, eternal things, than what the lost do. So rather than give ourselves to unrestrained behavior like drunkenness, he says we should be sober-minded in prayer. That's what we are to be. See, the lost world is characterized by people who look to escape. They want to escape from their problems. They want to escape from their their guilt. They want to escape from their fears and stresses. And so they turn to bottles. They turn to drugs. They turn to any host of other things to, 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 to run away and escape. But as Christians, when life gets hard for us, when life gets scary, when the world seems a little bit more chaotic, we're not to run off and, and try to turn off our brains or bury our heads in the sand. Instead, we should strive to think more clearly so we can pray more powerfully. We don't run and escape. We run to our knees in prayer. That's the mark of a Christian as all things is drawing near is that we are on our knees in prayer and there's a lot in this world for us to be praying for. Amen? Amen. We are to be sober in prayer. One, uh, one commentary posed the question, could it be that the strength of our private prayer life is an indication of our progress in self-control and sober-mindedness? If so, then most of us need to get busy before we're asked to meet and speak with Jesus face-to-face. Amen. 
Think about it. Didn't, didn't Jesus tell Peter and James and John on the night that he was betrayed, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we know that their flesh was weaker than their spirit was willing, and they fell asleep. And Jesus had to come and awaken them, saying, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. It's no coincidence that Peter is using the same language here. He's saying the end of all things, the time is near. Stay awake. Be sober-minded in prayer. We've got to get up and go. Because the end is close at hand. We are to be sober-minded in prayer. Secondly, we are to show love to one another. Look at verse 8. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Again, Peter here is using language reminiscent of Jesus' on that night he was betrayed, before in the Garden of Gethsemane, but here Peter is drawing from something Jesus said in the upper room at the Last Supper. John 13, 34 and 35 records that Jesus said, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One of the greatest marks of a Christian, particularly in these last days, is how we love the family of God. How do we love one another? Because we are family, aren't we? Now, what do you call a family that doesn't demonstrate genuine love for one another? A family that's constantly bickering, vindictive, slandering and gossiping about each other, failing to look after each other's needs, and instead just you know, promoting themselves selfishly. What would you call that kind of a family? The Kardashians, right? <laughs> You'd call them dysfunctional, wouldn't you? That's a dysfunctional family. And, and sadly, there are families that turn their dysfunction into entertainment to try to make a profit off of it. And, and for us, it's kind of like a train wreck, right? You just can't help but look. But nobody wants to be in a family like that, do they? Well, what does the world see? What kind of family does the world see when they look at us? When they look at the church, what kind of image of a family do we present when the world looks at us to see how we love and treat each other and forgive each other and bear with one another? Are they attracted or horrified? Do they look because they want to be like us and a part of us or do they look because we're a train wreck? Which is it? Peter gives two characteristics of what this family love is supposed to look like. He tells us first it's constant. We are to maintain a constant love. That word also means earnest, eager, without ceasing. Our love is to be marked by a persistent, consistent caring for one another. And it's important to note here also the Greek word he uses for love. There are several Greek words that mean love. It's agape. It's the highest, purest form of love. It's a self-sacrificing kind of love. It's a love that doesn't expect anything in return. It's a love that can't be earned. It has to be freely given. It's a for-God-so-loved-the-world kind of love. That's the kind of love we are to have for one another. Is that, kind, is that the kind of love you show to your fellow Christians? Is it earnest and eager? Is it persistent and caring? It's to be a caring love. Secondly, it's to be a covering love. He says love covers a multitude of sins. Now, where have we heard that before recently? 
James, right? Just a few Sundays ago. In James 5, 19 and 20, he writes, My brothers and sisters, my family, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner back from the error of his way will save his soul from death. And what? Cover a multitude of sins. And now Peter and James are both taking this from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 12 says that hate stirs up a conflict, but love covers up offenses. So when you think about this idea of love covers a multitude of sins, it, it brings to mind the idea of atonement. We talked about this when we, we looked at this in James. But we all know that the only one who can truly atone for our sins, who can cover and take away our sins, is Jesus, right? My loving you cannot cover up your sins or mine, right? We, we, Jesus' blood only can do that. So what do Peter and James and the author of Proverbs, what do they mean by this? How can our love cover sins? Well, two things. First, this is what I said a few weeks ago, when we cover each other's sin and love, when we love each other and forgive each other and turn somebody back from the error of their ways, we remind them of the grace of God. It's a reminder that we are forgiven in Christ Jesus. And even when we sin, when we stumble and fall, we can never negate the grace of God. The grace of God is, is a constant in our lives. We are, we are under the blood of Jesus Christ. So in an eternal sense, in a spiritual sense, Christian love can cover all of sins because it reminds us that our sins are covered in Christ Jesus. But secondly, in a temporal sense, in a, in a here and now sense, Christian love covers the consequences of our sin. It covers up the offense because if you sin against me, I'm supposed to do what? Forgive you. It means that you bear with my weaknesses and faults and I bear with yours. It means that we don't condemn one another, we don't gossip about each other, we don't seek revenge. One commentary used the analogy of how you might use a wet blanket to, to throw on a fire, to take out all that oxygen and put the flames out. And the commentary says, love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes the air from one caught on fire. If you had somebody who was on fire and you threw that wet blanket over them and put the flames out, you have saved their life, haven't you? May we love in this way. May nothing evil be allowed to breathe for long. May we keep short accounts because the last days are coming and we need sincere love that covers our sins. I mean, we live in a cancel culture where people are so quick to dump somebody, to exclude somebody, to, 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 to exercise somebody because of a perceived sin, because they held an unapproved opinion, they made an embarrassing mistake, and so they're virtually erased. They're discarded. As Christians, we have an opportunity to shine in that kind of a world, to show our culture a better way, a way of forgiveness, a way of restoration, a way to cover a multitude of sins by the grace of God. Now, does that mean there are no consequences to our sins? Does that mean there's no process of restoration, that there should be no expression of remorse or, or effort made for restitution? No. Does it mean that we just pretend like it never happened? No. But what it does mean is that that person is welcomed into the family of faith as the brother and sister they are. It means there's no revenge no resentment, no, no holding a grudge or, or dangling the past over their head. It means that we entrust the offense and the offender to the justice and grace of God. It means that we follow a path of restoration no matter how long that journey might take. And it means we don't write off the person 
but we do let go of the pain. That's how love covers a multitude of sins. Christian love that is constant and covering, it's the exact opposite of the ways of the world Peter describes in verse 3, where he talks about how they carry on in unrestrained behavior and evil desires. That means that they're, they're going around being promiscuous, in sensual lust, being unrestrained in immoral and depraved ways. Could this be any more descriptive of our culture today? Listen, what the world calls love is not the kind of love God would have us to have as the end draws near. That's not biblical love. It's the exact opposite. Because the love we're called to have doesn't revel pridefully in sexual sins and ever-increasing levels of depravity. That's not love. Love instead covers those things, meaning love smothers out the sin to save the sinner, to save the person. Love removes those sins and replaces them with what's purifying and life-giving. Love covers a multitude of sins. We are to show love to one another and we are also to share hospitality with one another. Look at verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Boy, that's short and to the point, isn't it? Be hospitable to one another without complaining. There's a Bible verse you can memorize right now. It's really easy. See, like the world's love is unlike biblical love, the world's version of welcoming and fellowshipping is nothing like biblical hospitality. Peter, in fact, describes how the pagans have reduced these things to orgies, carousing, and what he calls a flood of wild living. In the Greco-Roman world, they saw relationships as purely transactional. Relationships are all about power, all about what you can do for me. How will you scratch my back? If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. How can you increase my power, my pleasure, my, my, my gain? That's how they looked at relationships. But hospitality is different from that. Hospitality, building off of agape love, seeks to serve people with no strings attached, not expecting anything in return. The concept of hospitality specifically is about how generously you care for the stranger the person you don't even know, how would you welcome them into your home or into your life in Jesus' name? But here, Peter says, we're to be hospitable with one another. He's not talking about outsiders and strangers necessarily. We're to be hospitable with each other as family in Christ. That means that we should prioritize Christian community above all others and treat each other as honored Guests, whether it's a lifelong person you've grown up in church with or somebody who's brand new, we're to treat each other as honored guests in our lives. The church in Acts is a great example of this. You may remember the opening chapters of Acts. It's Pentecost, one of the three great feast days where people flooded to Jerusalem to, to celebrate and worship. And, and there are just people, Jewish people from all over the Roman world speaking a host of different languages. They're all in Jerusalem And on that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls upon the believers of Jesus and fills them. The church is birthed and Peter is enabled and the other apostles are enabled to go into the streets and preach such that the people hear them in their own language. It's a miracle. People are amazed. How am I hearing you speak to me? You're obviously from from around here. You're Galilean. You're Jewish. You're you're, you're from from this area. How can I understand you in, in my own tongue? It was a miracle. 
And as Peter preaches, 3,000 believed or baptized and added to the church that day. 3,000. Now remember, most of those were pilgrims. They weren't from Jerusalem. And as Pentecost came to an end, and it would have been time for them to go home, maybe they planned to come and stay for a week, but now they've received the Holy Spirit. Now they're a part of this exciting, growing movement of Christianity. They're a part of this community called the church. They don't want to leave. They want to stay and worship with these people. They want to hear the teachings of Peter, James, and John and the others. They want to grow and be discipled in their faith and and serve Jesus and share this good news. They don't want to go, so what do they do? Well, it becomes incumbent upon the Jerusalem believers to do what? To open their homes to these pilgrims who have come to stay, right? It becomes incumbent on the wealthier people who have come to Jerusalem to maybe give some money and support some of the poorer pilgrims so they can have food to eat and and places to stay. They have to show hospitality. And Acts says that they had no needs among them because of their generosity and hospitality. And the watching world took note. And more and more people believed and were saved and added to the church because of it. Now, there are a lot of different ways we can show hospitality to one another today. And it may be that God would have you open up your home to give somebody a place to stay for a night or two or more. It might be that God would have you or your family be foster parents or take in a foreign exchange student. Maybe God would have you to lend that spare vehicle you have to somebody who's desperately in need of transportation to get to work. Now, you may say, now, David, that's, just, that's a little much. I don't know that I have a room to spare or a car to spare or whatever. Well, listen, maybe you just have a stable with some warm, dry hay. There may not be any room in your inn, but you've got something God can make use of. Amen? You've got something that you can offer somebody in the name of Jesus. Now, hospitality also means how we share Christian fellowship with each other in and through the church. How welcoming of new people is your Sunday school class? Are you willing to pull up an extra chair to your table on Wednesday night at supper so somebody can eat with you and your group? When you walk into the sanctuary on a Sunday morning and there's a stranger sitting in your pew, do you ask them to move? Or do you ask if you can join them? and worship alongside them and help them feel connected to the church. Notice Peter's qualification for our hospitality. He said that love is to be constant and covering, and hospitality is to be not complaining. Not complaining. Maybe you wish he'd left that part of that verse off. This word means murmuring, grumbling. It literally means a low-toned muttering under your breath or behind your hand. It's one of those things. It doesn't mean that you're like actively complaining to the person that you're supposedly being hospitable towards. No, it means that in your heart you're grumbling. You're going to smile and say, oh, can I join with you? But on the inside you're like, this is my pew. You know, it's... God wants our heart to have a true spirit of Christian love. He wants us to truly desire to do life together with other people and create a welcoming atmosphere. Not just a smile plastered on, but one that shines from the heart. And once again, this is something our world desperately needs to see, to see the church display what it means to love and to welcome others with no strings attached, with no hidden agenda, not because this person can make you look good or further your political purposes. It's not about virtue signaling. 
We simply practice hospitality because it's the right thing to do. Because it's what God does for us. It's just another way that we can allow His blessings and His grace to overflow our cup and into the lives of those around us. To be hospitable without complaining. But Christian love is also demonstrated in how we serve one another. Look at verses 10 and 11. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's Word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides. So here we come to the crux of this week's emphasis. We heard it in our Advent reading. You'll see it this week in your Advent devotionals. And you may be wondering, you know, David, all this stuff is great about being sober-minded in prayer and showing love and hospitality, but I thought this was about serving the newborn king. How does all of this serve Jesus? What's that have to do with serving Jesus? It has everything to do with serving Jesus, right? Remember the parable of the sheep and the goats? Jesus said, whatever you did or didn't do to the least of these, it's as if you did it or failed to do it for me. We serve Jesus our King by serving others. We love Him by how we love each other. Peter contrasts this with the pagan world in verse 4. He says, the pagan world, he says, they're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. See, the lost world treats people as things to be used for personal benefit. They blaspheme and revile people because they're different. They refuse, because they refuse to celebrate or affirm certain sins. Again, it's alarming how much like our world these two verses are descriptive, right? I mean, it's like Peter's writing about today. And as Christians, I believe we're going to face increasing ridicule and slander because we refuse to join the world's prideful parade of sin. Because we refuse to go along with the floodwaters of wild living. They revile us. But what we should do is seek to serve others in Christian love. That word serve is the same word from which we get the word deacon. It means to minister to someone's needs. It means to help somebody with their, with their practical, everyday needs. And Peter once again gives us some qualifiers for what this service should look like. Putting other people before ourselves, serving them, not seeking to use them. Serving them, not slandering them like the world does. Even if they are different from us. Even if they disagree with us. We should serve people in the name of Jesus and show them the love of God. So he gives us three qualifiers of this service. One, we are to serve as stewards of God's gifts. Now, a steward in that world was the, the, the administrator of a wealthy lord's estate. You know, maybe some Roman senator, somebody like that. You are managing somebody's estate, their household. Okay, it's more than just a butler. It, it, it's like the manager of the estate. You think about whoever's in charge of keeping up with the Biltmore estate, for example. It would be somebody like that. It means that we are to be good administers of God's gift as if we were managing some wealthy, lordly estate. Now, if you were asked by some powerful, wealthy person to manage their household and estate, you might consider that a great honor, a, a huge responsibility. How much truer is that for us as the church? We're asked by our Creator and Savior to be stewards of His gifts, to manage the gifts He's given us. It is an honor. It is a responsibility. How are we doing? Are you putting God's gifts to good work? Are you investing them? 
Are you letting them go out into the world and accomplish much for Him or are you squandering those gifts? Are you squandering the opportunities that He's putting in front of you? We are to be stewards of God's gifts. Secondly, we are to serve from the supply of God's strength. Whose strength? Whose supply? Not yours and mine. (laughs) Not me, not you. Whenever we serve the Lord, we serve Him according to His supply, according to His strength, and therefore only He gets the glory and the praise, right? He calls us to serve, He gifts us to serve, and He strengthens us to serve. While on the earth, if Jesus in His physical form had to pray for the Spirit to empower Him to work miracles, if He only said and did the things the Father said and did, how much truer is it for you and me that when we serve God and we seek His kingdom to come, it's not by us, it's by Him. Amen? We need His strength. We need His gifts. We need His supply. And therefore, He gets the credit for the glory for anything that we do for Him. When we serve God, He should be glorified. When we shine our lights before others through our good deeds, we do it so that they glorify our Father in heaven, right? The spotlight should always be pointed away from us on Jesus, never on ourselves. We serve from the supply of His strength. And that's a promise. Because the promise is that whatever God calls you to do, He's going to equip you to do. God isn't going to put somebody in front of you that's lost for you to share the gospel and then not give you the strength to share the gospel. He's not going to bring somebody in your life that needs a word of encouragement, a word of wisdom, and leave you speechless. When you stand in front of a group of that preschoolers or middle schoolers to teach, He's there with you. He's going to give you the strength. He's going to give you the words. He's going to give you the gifts. Whatever you need to do, God will enable you to do it if He's put that opportunity in front of you. We serve God from the gifts and the strength. The third, we also speak from God's Word. We speak from God's Word, whether it's a preacher in the pulpit or a teacher in a Sunday school class or just in your day-to-day life. You have an opportunity to share the Gospel, to share a passage of Scripture, to share a word of hope and encouragement with somebody. We speak from God's Word, not just life hacks from Pinterest or what some celebrity said, or what the latest opinion poll says, or what your opinion says. No, we share what God says. That's not to say we can't find something useful, maybe from some of those other resources, but wherever they contradict the Word of God, they're a falsehood. That's fake news. We share the truth that comes from God's unchanging Word. Because God's Word is sufficient, as Paul wrote to Timothy, He said, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's Word is there to equip us to serve. God's Word is there to teach us, to rebuke and correct us, to train us in everything we need in life. Jesus warned that as the end of all things draw near, there would be false teachers increasing. He said people are even going to claim to be me. And they're going to deceive many people. Over and again, the Bible warns us to beware of those who don't speak the true words of God. In fact, just a few verses earlier in 2 Timothy 3, Paul warned Timothy. He said, evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, so how, how, can we, how can we keep ourselves from being the deceived ones? 
As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred Scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom and salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Listen, now more than ever, we need to be students of the Word of God. Now more than ever, we need to be speakers and doers of the Word of God. But you can't speak it and do it if you don't know it. We should be hungry and thirsty to spend time in Scripture, to listen to God speak to us from the pages of His Word. And that's the essence of Peter's instructions here. When we are sober-minded in prayer, when we are showing God's love to one another constantly, covering each other's sins, when we are showing Christian hospitality without complaining, when we're serving others according to the gifts and strengths of God and we're speaking God's Word, the end result of that is that God will be glorified. God will be glorified in everything. Look at the rest of verse 11. So that... Here's the reason. Here's the purpose. Here's the end goal of all of this. So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The final mark of those who are readying themselves for the return of the King is that we are living for the glory of God. We seek to glorify God in everything we say, in everything we do, in how we love, in what we pray, in all things we seek to bring Him glory. Jesus' glory, or God's glory, was the reason that Jesus was born and laid in that manger. What did the angel choir sing to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest, right? Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. We, we kind of like to jump to the peace on earth part, right? But he starts with glory to God in the highest. That's why Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. That's why the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. And when Christ does return at the end of all things, once again, it's all for the glory of God. Look what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. He said that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? The glory of God the Father. It's all about the glory of God. Are you living for the glory of God? Or yourself? Let's be honest. Have you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you ready for His return? He is coming back again. I, I read a, an article yesterday that talked about that 75% of Americans, and I don't know, you know, this is a reputable uh, polling group, 75% of Americans said they believe that Jesus was going to come back again. That kind of blew my mind. That seems awfully high to me. 95% of evangelical Protestant Christians said they believe Jesus is coming back again. 1% of atheists said that Jesus was coming back again. Now, I don't understand that one. I want to talk to that person, right? They interviewed 100 people and one atheist said, yeah, I believe Jesus is coming back again. I want to talk to that person. More importantly, I want to get those five evangelicals that don't believe He's coming back again to talk to that one person. That would be an interesting conversation, wouldn't it? Jesus is coming back again. It doesn't matter how many people believe that's true. It's going to happen. He will return. And when He does, will you be ready? Listen, before you can give your service to King Jesus, you've got to give yourself to King Jesus. Before God wants you as a servant, He wants you as a son or daughter. Jesus died on the cross that you might know God, that you might have a relationship with God. He loves you. 
That's why Jesus was born. That's why He died on that cross and rose from the grave. It was so that you could be forgiven of your sins and be made right with a holy God. Have you done that? Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've come to worship for years. Maybe you've even been baptized. But if you've never come to the point in your life that you realize you were lost in your sin and nothing you could say or do could make you right with God, you needed somebody else from outside to come in and rescue you. And that person is Jesus Christ. If you've never come to that realization and in faith and trust asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins and come and live within your heart, then you're not ready for His return. But you can be ready today. In a moment we're going to stand and sing and I would love nothing more than to help somebody this morning know that they belong to Jesus Christ. To know that He lives within them. To know that they stand righteous before God not because of themselves but because of what Jesus has done. If you have any questions or doubt about that I would love to receive you in a minute and help you Know that Jesus is your King. To know that God is your Father. But secondly, for those of us that are Christians, that are saved, how are we doing at serving Jesus? How are we doing at glorifying God? Which of these spiritual markers we've talked about this morning need to be addressed in your life? Maybe you need to get your thought and prayer life in order. You're not praying as you should. You know you're not thinking as you should. Maybe that's something you need to be working on. Maybe this morning you'll come to this altar and pray and say, God, I've not been showing love to people the way I should. I've not been constant in my love. I've not been caring in my love. I've not been you know, forgiving people. There's somebody in my heart that I've not forgiven. I need to forgive this person. Maybe you need to come and deal with God about that. Maybe God is convicting you about the lack of hospitality that you've showed to a certain somebody. Maybe there's even a name or a face coming to your mind right now that you need to say, God, help me to love that person. Help me to welcome that person. Help me to to bear with that person. Maybe for you it's that you aren't in the Word of God the way you should. And you say, God, forgive me for my laziness. Forgive me for my indifference. Give me a hunger and thirst for Your Word. Whatever it is, this altar is open and I'll be standing right down here. Maybe God would have you unite with this church family and say, I belong to Jesus. I know I'm a Christian. But but this, this this is the family that God wants me to be a part of. These are the people that God wants me to be hospitable with and to serve and to love. Whatever God is speaking to your heart, let's be obedient to Him this morning. Let's stand and pray. Father, thank You for this time together this morning, and thank You for the ultimate hospitality that You have shown us in Christ Jesus. That while we were far from You, while we were Your enemies, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That we might become Your children. That we might become Your friends that we might serve You in gratitude and love. God, thank You for that. You have served. You have shown love. You've done all of this. You've modeled these things for us, Jesus. You've spoken God's Word and truth. You live to glorify the Father. Help us to follow in Your footsteps. And Father, maybe that means today somebody needs to come in faith and give their lives to You for the first time, Father. Maybe it's somebody needs to come and rededicate themselves in, in some way to recommit themselves, to, to ask for Your strength and, and Your supply of gifts to help them. Maybe it's not with this church family or or answer your call into full-time ministry, God. Whatever you're speaking to our hearts, may we be receptive and obedient. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.